thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Time for the Naked Scientist. Dr. Chris Smith is with us and we've been having some very interesting conversations on the show. But I want us to jump straight into the messages that have come through. And the first one says, um, this is from Vinay. Please ask Dr. Chris Smith, why when bitten by a mosquito, the spot the spot itches, and why does it become red, which can last for a couple of days? That's from Vinay. Hello, Vinay. The answer to this one is... First of all, why do you get a spot there? You get a spot there because the mosquito in biting you has homed in on where there is a blood vessel close to the surface of the skin. It has threaded its mouth parts, its proboscis, which is like a a hypodermic needle, in through the skin, probed around to find that blood vessel. And then it squirted in its saliva. And this is why mosquitoes are really bad for spreading diseases ranging from Zika virus to malaria and yellow fever and so on because they inject their saliva into you when they bite you. And the reason they inject their saliva is their saliva contains chemicals that damp down your immune response and render the mosquito temporarily invisible to an immune attack and also stop your blood clotting because the thin proboscis would very quickly clog up with blood that would try to coagulate when the mosquito was drinking its meal if it didn't do that. But when it's done that, it has put into your body foreign substances as well as some microorganisms, bacteria, which go in with the mouthparts there on the mosquito. So if the mosquito puts them into you, the microbes go in. So what you end up with is an immune response to what's in the saliva, what's on the mosquito, and when you have an immune response, you get inflammation. Inflammation causes redness, swelling, tenderness and heat, and blood vessels dilate and and become leaky, and that causes the swelling. You also wind up local nerves because the nerves that signal that something's wrong in the skin, they also increase their level of signalling, and you also discharge histamine the itchy chemical that's in your mast cells in your skin, which get physically perturbed by the mosquito prodding them, the inflammation and you scratching at that patch of skin, which is why if you see a mosquito bite and you rub it, it tends to get itchier the minute you start itching it because you make more histamine come out. So the bottom line is try and avoid scratching them if you can, but that is why it gets itchy because you are having an immune response against all those foreign things that the mosquito has put into your body and it's releasing histamine which is an itchy chemical, and its ultimate goal is to is to alert you to there being something wrong with that bit of your body. So in that respect, it works. So then follow up on this mosquito question, Nicole is asking, why a mosquito that bites you when you are drunk, do they not get drunk? <laughs> well, the amount of concentration of alcohol in the bloodstream isn't high enough when a mosquito takes a tiny drink in order to overwhelm the mosquito. There might be enough there when it's actually got into your target tissues. Because remember, when you drink, alcohol moves from areas of high concentration, i.e. your stomach, 
into your blood and then it goes from the blood into areas which like dissolving fatty materials and oils and that's your brain. So the alcohol, liking oil as it does, moves into your nervous system. Once it's in your nervous system, it builds up in that site and the accumulation in that site causes the sensation of drunkenness. But the actual concentration of alcohol in the bloodstream, while it does go up when you're drinking, it wouldn't be high enough to render the mosquito incapacitated because its dose would be very small from that tiny amount of blood that it had drawn into its body. All right, let's go to another voice note. Good afternoon. Uh, Dr. Chris, uh, I'd like to find out uh, with regards to exercising, what, uh, when a person becomes bulky when exercising, what is it that becomes bulky? Is it the muscles and what causes the muscles to become bulky? Is it the fluids or is it the muscles uh, inflammating or something? And then how come it stays like that? For quite a long time and then unlike any other inflammation that would wear off or over time how come the muscles stay like that for a long period what causes them to do that mm, dr chris when we take exercise you are stressing your body and you're stressing yourself biochemically you're stressing yourself physically your physical muscles and you're also stressing your cardiovascular and cardiorespiratory system and whenever you stress the body you release various growth factors and signals that make the thing that's being stressed A, repair itself, and B, grow a bit. So the more exercise you do, the more that the systems that get stressed grow. And so you can see that there's a balance there. It's a bit like if you put something heavy on one end of a seesaw and then you put things on the other end of the seesaw to balance it out, all the time the seesaw stays imbalanced, you keep adding things to one side until it balances up. So the more exercise you do, the more it tips the seesaw and the more repair and growth you apply to the other side of the seesaw to balance things up. Now, the things you've you've added to balance things up don't remain forever, of course, because the body doesn't invest in keeping things big, fit, fat and strong forever because that takes a lot of energy and it wouldn't be in your interest to maintain something which was costing a lot to maintain that you weren't using. So there is this whole mantra of use it or lose it. So your body achieves an equilibrium where it's investing the right amount of growth and repair into the system to balance out what you're costing in terms of the exercise that you're doing. So the body's in a sort of balance, but it doesn't react instantly because if it reacted instantly and turned things off, then you'd end up lurching from a state of continuously trying to shed weight and muscle to grow weight and muscle, and it would be inefficient. So there's gentle cycles where you slowly turn up the response until you get things about right and then you slowly turn it down again and that's a, a damped system and that tends to be how the body tends to operate and so when you do exercise you promote growth in your muscles this leads to the physical creation of new muscle fibers which are the contractile elements the motors inside your muscle that generate the physical force you make more of that protein when you take exercise but that takes time and alongside that there are other changes to the muscles which includes making them more vascular so you can get more blood supply in you change the enzyme profiles so that they can use more oxygen rather than not using as much oxygen and that makes the muscles capable of sustaining their exercise for longer and so you get a combination of muscles that are capable of working harder 
capable of producing more force and capable of working for longer before they get fatigued. And the same applies to your heart and you also increase your lung capacity as well, which means you can push more oxygen into your blood supply and move more blood more quickly. Mm. And this means everything works more efficiently. All right, let's go to Diani in Santon. Hi. Hi, Rilabukhele. Yes, go ahead. Um, so when you were, when a woman has been breastfeeding and they suddenly stop, your breasts become engorged. And after some time, they say your breast milk will dry up. Mm. So I want to know where does the milk go? Where does it dry up to? Where does is it absorbed in the system? Where does the milk go? All right, that's a good question, Diani. Hello, Diani. Well, there's a couple of things that happen here. One is that you do get a little bit of leaking, and so people do find they get uncomfortably engorged, as you say, to start with, and so some does come out. But a lot of it then gets reabsorbed because breast tissue is glandular tissue, and what that means is that blood from your blood supply goes into the glands. The glands take nutrients from the blood and water pass them through the cells of the gland and secrete the right mix of chemicals into the ducts in the glands that makes the milk. And those are generally waterproof, but not completely. And so some of the constituents can come back the other way. So there's like a dynamic equilibrium there. So there's a net production with a bit of reabsorption. But quite quickly, once the breast is engorged and full, it's much easier for fluid to move out again than to move back into the duct system so you generally find that as soon as you stop taking fluid away off of the breasts then the drive to make more breast milk goes down and there's less stimulus to the breast to keep making milk so the rate of production drops the rate of reabsorption stays the same and therefore over time and quite quickly you lose the ability to produce as much milk and then eventually you stop producing it altogether and the same applies to a cow uh, if you do if you milk a cow regularly you'll get a high milk yield if you stop milking a cow because that would be the same as once her calf got big enough and went off and did its own thing and stopped drinking from mum the milk supply would drop but it wouldn't drop instantly to nothing because you know most animals don't just suddenly stop feeding they just reduce the frequency of feeding and therefore the volume of milk that is needed and so in the same way as when you exercise you build muscles to balance that notional seesaw of supply and demand you do the same thing with the milk production you produce the milk at a rate that suits the amount it's being consumed and if it's not being consumed then it stops being produced and it's slowly absorbed back into the body Okay, here is another voice note. Hi, Dr. Chris. My name's Atta. I would just like to ask you, you see when a candle melts and the wax melts from the heat of the fire, what happens to all that excess wax? I mean, the other wax hardens, but does it like float into the air? Mm. Very good question, especially because, Dr. Chris, I've seen new products where you can put your candle into a little contraption that allows the wax to melt into the contraption. Then you almost have a second candle when that one is finished. Right. Well, I haven't seen one of those, but it sounds like... uh... The kind of thing that kids love to play with at the table at dinner time when they should be eating their dinner. Very distracting. But the, the, <laughs> yes. the question really is how does a candle work? And many people think the wax is there just to hold the wick. But that's not true. The wax is the fuel for the candle. It's a hydrocarbon, a bit like diesel and petrol, except it's a slightly different composition. So it's solid at room temperature. And when you light the candle, you are giving energy 
and the heat energy melts the wax, which becomes a fluid. This soaks up the wick and then gets close to the flame, which then causes the liquid to change phase again and become a gas. It's wax vapour. And the vapour mixes with air, which is being pulled in from the sides at the bottom of the flame, and the combination of the oxygen in the air plus the fuel, which is the wax vapour, is what causes the flame to burn. So it becomes a self-fulfilling, self-powering cycle where the wax burns, releases some heat, the heat melts more wax, which moves up the wick, mixes with more oxygen and makes more of a flame, which produces more heat, which melts more wax, which causes it to go up the wick. There's always a bit of excess wax, because if there wasn't enough wax there, the candle would burn away very, very quickly. And that's what happens with a birthday cake candle, for example. But with a big, nice, chunky candle, you've got a good ratio of wax, which is the fuel, to wick, which is soaking up that uh, liquid wax and enabling it to get close to the flame, vaporise, and the vapour is what's burning. That's the flame. Okay, let us go to another voice note. Honorable I need to ask uh, your guest, why pig doesn't eat onion? It can chow anything. When it comes to the onion, no. Doesn't it eat that onion? <laughs> why don't Doctor? kids eat uh, their onions? I, I don't know, but the I was pigs. one of... I think you said pigs. I thought oh, I couldn't work out if you said pigs or kids, but yes, pigs eat pigs, anything. Not kids. Pigs eat anything, <laughs> yes. as far as I can tell. Uh, and the pigs I've seen... Are, I'm fussy. There are not many things the pigs won't eat. Um, it might be that, I mean, pigs and kids have this in common. It might be that they're avoiding strongly flavoured things because the reason onions make the compounds that they do that make them smell like onions and taste like onions and that we love them for that is because they're stuffed with sulfur compounds. And these sulfur compounds, which are also found in, in things like garlic and leeks, those sulfur compounds are there as a deterrent to stop things that would normally eat plants from eating them. So this is almost like inbuilt chemical weaponry. It's inbuilt chemistry to defend yourself. And it may well be that in the same way as some animals like caterpillars find those things unappealing, other creatures might find them unappealing too. And in that respect, the onion has achieved its aim to stop someone making a meal out of it. But that doesn't work with us because we love them for those flavours and they impart those flavours into the things we cook. They are an acquired taste. And if it was kids that was being said rather than pigs, and I've misheard, <laughs> then children tend to avoid strongly flavoured things when they're very, very young because they, they find them foreign and they find them a bit scary. And children prefer to have things that aren't too strongly flavoured as they're first establishing their palate. And then generally, as we get older, we, we become less suspicious of different food things, foodstuffs, and we are less suspicious and put off by different flavours. So we tend to widen our palate and our, our dietary repertoire as we get older. And I used to actively avoid eating onions when I was little because I thought I didn't like the taste. And now I realise how wrong mm. I was. Yes, 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 indeed. Okay, there's an interesting um, question that's come through here, and it says it's from Gele Khadebe from Ennerdale. And Gele says, is it true that women end up with male DNA in their bodies after pregnancy? And can it happen to women who don't have sons? Right. This is a brilliant question. And the answer is, yes, it absolutely can. And people have done experiments over many years now where they have looked at women who've been pregnant and they've looked at various tissues in the body of the woman who's been pregnant and they can find in those tissues 
Y chromosomes. Only men have Y chromosomes. So if a woman has a Y chromosome in her body and she's been pregnant and she's been pregnant with boys, the source of those Y chromosomes is almost certainly, and people have confirmed it by doing genetic studies, that cells from her developing baby have got into the mum's bloodstream, gone round her body and taken up residence in her various tissues. And this has been demonstrated in humans as well as in experimental animals. And it's called microchimerism. And the cells that come out of a developing baby, one theory is that they behave as stem cells. So they track to parts of the body where there are injuries. And the idea is that they are looking for things they can help to repair because they may get into injured tissue and then they turn themselves into specialised cell types which are like the cells around them in order to help to repair things. And researchers a few years back in Singapore did some studies where they had mice which were genetically engineered to have a jellyfish glowing green protein in them. And they mated those mice with mice that did not have that glowing green gene. And they found that in these female mice that were pregnant with pups that were glowing green, green cells turned up well after the birth of the pups in the mums, in all these different tissues. And if different tissues were injured in some way, such as if, if there was a brain injury, then lots of the cells tracked to an injured site. The theory being perhaps this is the fetus helping the mum to go through repair to make up for some mm. of the costs of pregnancy. We don't know for sure. But the downside of this is that it's probably not a coincidence that women have a much higher rate of autoimmune diseases than men. And they're much more likely to have autoimmune diseases after they've been pregnant. So one theory is that perhaps in some women, when these cells take up residence in different parts of the body, in some susceptible individuals under certain circumstances that we don't thoroughly understand, this triggers an inappropriate immune response against those target tissues because there are foreign cells there now. And that might be why we see this association of pregnancy in, in women having a higher rate of autoimmune disease in the aftermath. Dr. Chris Smith, thank you so much. Always a pleasure chatting to you. We're back together next week, Monday. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.